These tools are for you to use. These tools are for you to use. Hey, I'm Dave Marr. Welcome to This Is Your Afterlife, conversations with artists and activists about death and life. My guest this week is author, uh, critic, sci-fi aficionado geek nerd it's it's two these are two tame of terms sarah welch larson sarah is my friend i know her we volunteer at the same youth group have for a couple years now and she just wrote a book becoming alien the beginning and end of evil in science fiction's most idiosyncratic film franchise i'll be honest my reading game has not been super on point recently so i i took a look at it I can't claim it's it's a it's a there's there's it's accessible, but it is um, idea dense. So I was I was a little overwhelmed, but it's a super cool looking book. Um, the stuff that I did see in it, I was very excited about. We talk about that in the episode a little bit. Sarah is basically an expert on all the Alien films, not just uh, not just the quote unquote good ones, and we get into that. And that book just came out this week. So there's links to it in the show notes. Click on those links, buy a copy of the book, support Sarah. You can follow Sarah at the links in the show notes. You can follow me. You can sign up for my newsletter, which is a great supplement to this podcast. And you can go to my Patreon, patreon.com slash Dave Marr. That will get you the full episode. I always ask the same few segments. I don't always include them in the main episode on the feed, but I include everything, including usually a bunch of bullshitting at the beginning. All that goes in the full episode, and you can get that with this episode with Sarah this week if you go to the Patreon. So without further ado, I want to thank my pigeon-level patrons, Kurt Chang, Katie Llewellyn, Susie Carroll, and Fred Fidoa. And if you like the show, tell people about it. Well, that's it. And enjoy this conversation with Sarah Welch Larson. I grab your whip and take it back to Shatown. When I'm in Shatown, I treat it like. And so I was thinking it might be interesting if, because I've, you can name your employer or not. I really don't give a shit either way. But having worked in exactly the building that you've that you work in, and knowing. You know, I'll 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 own my own characteristics of it as a very like rigid kind of parody of a corporate environment, corporate environment in some ways. Where I certainly felt like I had to create a really big line between who I am personally and who I was there. Mm. The question is, do you tell people about your creative work at your day job? And if you do, how do you describe it? Um, I usually just revert to the, I'm a film critic shorthand, which isn't really true because I'm not attached to any outlets or anything. Um, I also go by my last quote unquote maiden name at my job because my legal name is still just Welch. Um, Mm. and there's almost always been another Sarah on whatever team I'm working on. So just to differentiate, I've got, I went by Welch when I was in college, so it's just easier to go by that. So I can actually like almost bifurcate myself between like this is writer Sarah versus this is 
day job, Sarah, just by thinking like, is my last name Welch Larson in this context or is it just Welch? Um, which is probably a lot more confusing for other people than it is for me personally, but it seems to work fine. Um, some people do know that I write, uh, but I don't talk about it a ton. Um, a few of the people that I've worked with closely, like are aware of the book, um, or they know that like I write about science fiction, but I don't really talk about it a ton at work. Okay. Yeah. The, the, but they know you write about. So what do you say about it what, that they know about? How did you even, how did they even get to the point of knowing about it? Oh, I had to introduce myself to uh, a team of people um, recently because I got moved to another project and I was like, oh yeah, I, I write about science fiction. Um, I write about the alien movies. And then like the book came up sort of organically from there because people were like, why would you want to write about the alien movies? <laughs> What's the point of doing that? Wait, so do you, do you identify as writing about the alien movies beyond this book? Or you're just so... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, That's actually... That's the series that I've written about the most. So, like, weirdly enough, I've written about the three of the quote-unquote lesser alien movies for Bright Wall, Dark Room before. So, a couple years ago... Bright Wall, Dark Room? Bright Wall, Dark Room is the uh, film zine that I write for online. Oh, okay. 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 Yeah. It sounded like a publishing imprint when you Mm -mm. said it. Okay. No, they're a a zine. They're fantastic. Yeah. they were the first people to publish me um, and they usually entertain whatever gonzo pitch I have. Um, So when I said that I wanted to write about alien three for their issue, I think it was August, 2018, they had an issue that was just uh, called body. And I said that I wanted to write about alien three because it was the alien movie that most seriously takes um, the problem of being a person in a body that is coded as female in the world. Um, And it recognizes just how difficult that that can be. Um, And so I've written about that one. I've written about alien resurrection for them. Um, I also wrote about alien covenant for them because alien covenant freaking rules. uh, And it was one of the best movies of its year. Um, So yeah, I, I mean, I write about sci-fi in general, but I have a very, very soft spot for the alien movies in particular. So are you worried about being pigeonholed as an alien only writer? (laughs) Or are you okay with it? I'd like to branch out to be just more of a a sci-fi horror person, I think. Um, But the alien movies do that so well because they they really get like, I don't know, the visceralness of being in the world and being in a horror movie better than some other sci-fi horror movies do, I think. Well, and it's interesting too, as a text, it feels like you're like a classics major or or something because reading (laughs) through this book, it was like the way you're writing about it is like a very accessible, but academic style, lots of citations and stuff. And Mm -hmm. so it does make sense that like, um, well, wait. Did you go to University of Chicago? Did you get I that? I did. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I went. So you I went know to that, the, uh, like. Yeah. No, go ahead. Um, I did. I did the math program there, so I was there for right. one year, um, which was so, enough. <laughs> are you familiar with that fundamentals major, the fundamentals issues and texts major? I am not. I don't know if they still have it, but it was basically you had to apply to it. I did, and I didn't get in, which is probably for the best because it wouldn't. It's it wouldn't have mattered either way, but. Um, you basically propose a question and you major in that question oh, and God. you, you know, it'd be like, it could be something as broad as like, what is evil or like, I don't know. I mean, they have to approve it, but it could be like, what's with 
horses in Spanish literature or some shit like that, probably, you know, and like, and you just major in this question and you find all these things to like, you know, you, you read across eras and, and cultures to answer this question. And it feels like, I don't know what the question is, but aliens is the text that you're like, not alien, not just the second movie, but all of those movies are like this, this source text from which you like, are spouting this fount of criticism, you know? I would have been insufferable if I had done that major. <laughs> I would have oh, yeah. absolutely oh. applied for it and I would have been insufferable. Um yeah, no, my undergrad I did a I did linguistics and then at the U of C I also did like a it was technically a humanities masters, um, but I focused in linguistics. And um I kept trying to find ways around like using linguistic theory to describe other problems that were not strictly speaking linguistics. So like my undergrad thesis took uh, this one theory of translation and then applied it from adaptate to adaptations from lit to film. So I ended up just like writing my undergrad thesis about adaptations of uh, specific Sherlock Holmes short story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, these ones work because they adhere to this theory of translation. And then these ones don't because they play a little bit too fast and loose. Um, so yeah, no, that, oh my gosh, that major would have been, I'm I'm really <laughs> glad that I wasn't aware of it because I would have just gone ham. I wonder if they have it back. for that like one year program, but that's funny. I feel like linguistics people are so frequently like public intellectuals that like it, it lends itself very well to people who study it speaking on things outside of <laughs> the the field of study you know are we both thinking about noam chomsky well i mean noam chomsky but isn't steven pinker or is he just like a neuroscience guy i feel Uh, like he was a linguistics guy i think i uh don't quote me on that i don't know for sure isn't Um, isn't zizek a a linguistics guy Uh, wasn't derrida against linguistics derrida yes semiotics specifically but yeah right but all those guys are like just yeah i feel like linguistics is like the the front they they use to just like critique all culture. Oh yeah. Because if you can talk about the way people talk, then you can talk about the way that they think, I think um, is probably the gateway into that. But yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And if you can tie all of that into alien movies, then (laughs) might as well. What do you hope happens when you die? Oh man. Um, well, I'm an organ donor. So on this plane of existence, um, I hope that somebody else can get a chance to use the parts of my body that I'm not using anymore, if that ends up being the case. On whatever other plane of existence comes after us, um, I would hope for for healing and wholeness. Um, I would really love to see the people who went before me um, and to get to know them better. Like I met my great grandma once or twice uh, when I was growing up. And from what I can gather, she was a really, really neat lady. And I would love to to meet her again. Like, uh, I, I don't know. She seems like she would have been a really good person to talk to. And the last time I saw her, I was maybe four or five years old. And so like not really capable of having a good conversation. So yeah, um, I, I would hope that, I don't know, um, there would be, I, there would be a, a better understanding of the world as it is here. And then, I don't know, a, 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 oof, I'm, <laughs> I was thinking about this question and I had a good answer for it. And now I don't really have a good answer because, <laughs> because it's do you remember the good answer ineffable. that you had? Uh, the, the good answer is probably, um, 
I don't know. I'm probably going to end up leaning on my problematic fave C.S. Lewis a little bit. Have you read The Great Divorce? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So like that idea of the world after this one being one where there is still total freedom um, to do and believe what you want to believe. But if you end up um, choosing to fall into reconciliation with the rest of humanity, then the world that you experience is one that is more real and more, more full than this one here. Yeah. That's, yeah. I do remember that a lot, about like the grass being like firmer or something is like a it's thing that sharp, I remember. Yeah. To his feet. And like, I don't take that seriously because I don't think that it's like a, necessarily a serious theological work, but as a metaphor, I think it really works. Yeah. It's that idea of like, um, right now we, I don't know, see like a poor reflection and then, then later on we're going to see things face to face. Um, and we're, we're going to understand things more fully and we're going to be more fully known than we ever could be in this lifetime. And I really, I really resonate with that. So that's that Paul is what shit, I hope right? For. That's like it totally is. Paul. I'm what is afraid that? Is it that is Romans? Bullshit. What is that? Uh, no, that's first Corinthians 13. Mm, right, right, mm -hmm. right, right, right. Yeah. Okay. But it is very much Pauline, um, which is, yeah, uh, probably, uh, um, part of my very evangelical upbringing. So. Hey, yeah. <laughs> Wait, which which denomination were you? Did you uh, grow up in? So many different ones. So the nature of my dad's work was that we moved around a lot when I was a kid. Um, so I grew up going to Bible churches, Presbyterian churches, Baptist churches, like non denominational for the most part, though. Yeah, um, didn't right. Really right. Go but to like non denominational like, as a denomination. Pretty much, like, yeah. Like very independent. Like there wasn't really like a, a synod or like um, a, a, I don't know what the word is. Um, there weren't any like conventions like they are with the with the Methodist Church or anything mm -hmm. like that. It was just mm -hmm. just the pastor, just whoever like the governing board was or the group of deacons were. Um, and then our family would go, and we were actually we were pretty heavily involved. Like. I had members of my family who would be on the worship team at just about every church that we went to. Mm -hmm. um, we joined small groups pretty quickly. Like when you move around a lot, you either have to plug in quickly or you just don't know anybody for a couple of years. And that's just no real, that's a, that's a hard way to go through life. Um, so we would usually right. dive Because if you move around a lot, a couple of years is probably all you got. So you just don't mm -hmm. ever know anybody. And then you end up like meeting a ton of people later on down the line that you never expected to see again. So like, I had friends in elementary school that I ended up meeting up with again in high school because that's just where we all ended up. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And then you meet up with somebody and then you either never really talk to each other much or you become fast friends again, uh, which was what usually happened with us, which was really nice. Um, but yeah. So wait, why is C.S. Lewis a problematic fave? I mm, <laughs> I have some problems with I have a lot of problems with his views on women in particular. Oh, okay, um, yeah, yeah. I'm sure. It's it, it's my it's my problems with a, I think a lot of uh, Christian theology in that it tends to favor white dudes right, <laughs> and right, their perspectives. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so the this great divorce idea of a more real than real being more fully known mm -hmm. in terms of knowing people. It sounds like you're specifically interested in your ancestors as much or more than general celebrities. Yeah, I, I mean, I feel bad for celebrities because I feel like so many people have this parasocial relationship with them where like they 
don't know about me or don't care about me. So yeah, I would want to start with the people that I do have some sort of a connection with. Um, and then maybe branch out from there. I don't know. It would be really cool to have a conversation with someone who grew up and lived on the other side of the world that I never would have been able to meet otherwise. Um, and then see things from their perspective afterwards as well. That is really interesting. Cause I feel like people always think about the big personalities they want to meet, but it's mm-hmm. like, everyone knows some very charismatic, interesting, intelligent, curious person who has never achieved any sort of international acclaim. And so, yeah, why not meet a person from Mongolia who was just an acute observer of their surroundings? That is- Yeah, like that would be so neat. And I don't know, like it would be really cool to meet, I don't know, like Georgia O'Keeffe or Michelangelo or whatever, but why would they want to meet me? So like, why not, I don't know, branch out and make other connections with other people yeah, but who are probably the just as interesting. Of like, what if yeah. they did want to meet you? It would be like, damn, oh, that's pretty cool. You know, it's very tempting. <laughs> <laughs> so how much do you believe what like in this? Mm, um, my my belief system is probably best classified as angry Episcopalian ish at this point. <laughs> okay, so, good. What yeah. does that mean? So, still Christian, um, not evangelical anymore. Um, I'm pretty angry about evangelicalism's role in American politics, um, and we can probably just leave it at that. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I I mean, I believe, or at least I hope, I believe the words of the Nicene Creed, as they're said, like every Sunday morning, and I still say them even on the days when I'm having a really hard time believing that there's anything else besides all this. Which so, is what we believe in the Father. We the believe Son, in the God Holy the Spirit, Father. Basically. Yeah, okay. like that whole that whole litany. And I ha- and it's such a it's a it's a beautiful piece of poetry. Like there's a line in there that talks about how we believe in the Holy Spirit, like God from God, light from light, true God from true God. And so like that affirmation that there is somebody out there who is greater than us who set this world into motion, like I find that very comforting personally. And so even when I'm having a hard time seeing outside of the edges of my own skull, um, it's really helpful to just repeat that affirmation along with a group of other people preferably in person, although that hasn't happened for about a year. Mm -hmm. Um, It's good to repeat that with a group of people who may or may not be feeling the same faiths and hopes and doubts as I am at any given time. And it's good to say that like as a group and in a community. Um, And I think that's one of the things that I like about the Episcopalian church is that specifically there is this affirmation of that faith that is happening all over the world not necessarily at the same time because of time zones, but like on the same day of the week, every mm. single week where everyone gets together and they say, we may not necessarily agree on everything, but here's what we do agree on. And here's what we do believe. And we're going to build a community around that. And then hopefully we're going to do some good in the world because of it. And because of those beliefs. And I find that really beautiful, even though a lot of, I don't know, a lot of, a lot of Christianity and what Christianity has done in the past, um, makes me really angry still. So I'm still sorting through the balance between like the good and the true and then the things that have happened despite our best intentions. Yes. Yes. Okay. (laughs) I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah. What is, so does the threat of non-existence, non-consciousness loom for you? 
I don't think so. Um, Damn. So you're just like, you feel <laughs> comfortable and confident in that and and comforted by it. And let me ask you this. Do you have this dichotomy that I have coming from an evangelical background, mm-hmm. going through these academic institutions where it felt like if you have any comforting beliefs, that like comfort is in and of itself not true. That like mm-hmm. comfort and truth are like diametrically opposed. And Ooh. so truth is like must necessarily reject comfort and vice versa. Is that a dichotomy that exists for you? Not at all, no. <laughs> must be nice. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think that the the truth is hard sometimes and the and the truth sucks sometimes, but um I also find the fact that there is probably some sort of trueness out there honestly kind of comforting because I don't get to dictate what it is, which means that I don't get to dictate the terms of the world that we live in and that's a beautiful thing because I don't want to have to hold that together myself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think there's just something in me that's like you know, these, these, the, this voice that I hate, but that's like, oh, if you believe something to comfort yourself, it's like opiate of the masses language. Mm-hmm. It's like you're, you're, you're weak minded somehow by mm-hmm. taking comfort. Yeah. I have a problem with that because I think that it, it, taking comfort in something doesn't make you weak. It just means that you recognize that there is some part of yourself that may not necessarily be strong enough to handle the world without that comfort um, or without that network. And I don't have a problem admitting that I am not strong enough to face this world alone. Like I need a support network and I need people to support me. And if faith is a part of that, then I welcome it. Okay, so let's talk funeral planning then. Sweet. Yeah. What give me your thoughts? Um uh not too many other than I don't want like a massive production or anything like that. So, when I got married, um my husband and I like were literally married in a basement chapel with a handful of friends and then like the officiant and that was it. Like very few people even knew that it was happening. Like our families knew, um, but almost nobody else did. And we didn't even announce it until about a week later. Um, and one of the ideas that we kicked around beforehand was that we were just going to like stand up in the back of the church and be like, we want to get married. Can we do that today? <laughs> that like, didn't actually uh, happen because we don't go to the same church. So that idea ended up not panning out. What is it um, like a flash mob wedding basically? Kind of. I gather that the Society of Friends does that too, um, which is pretty rad. Like, I love the idea of just going into like a group of people that you know and standing up in front of them and saying like, "This is what we're going to be doing now," (laughs) Um, and then seeing if they affirm it or not. Hopefully, they would. Um, But I think that um, I like the idea of a funeral being something similar to that. Um, I I know that at least in the Episcopalian Church, like you can offer Eucharist in honor of someone who has died either recently or like on the anniversary of their death. Um, As for like actual funerals, I really just want people to get together and have a really good meal. 
Um, and it doesn't even have to be like at the, oh God, it would actually be really depressing if it happened at a funeral home. Like, I don't know. I'm yeah, not there. Sure. People don't usually eat it. at the funeral home. Dude. You know I, that, yeah, right? I've not been to, yeah, they did. Yeah, I know. Like at the afterwards, like okay. at the reception or whatever. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah, no, I, um, I don't know. I'm not there. So whatever happens, I would want it to be a comfort for other people. And I would want to have some sort of like plan in place for what happens when I do die so that other people don't have to deal with um, the administration of all of that. But I also don't want it to be like a massive production. Like I don't care if people actually come to see like the funeral itself. I want people to get together and enjoy a good meal and enjoy community with each other more than anything else. Do you care about it, anything about the meal or their time together commemorating you or just for them to enjoy it? I would want them to enjoy it. Um, Yeah, I don't know. Um, It's not like they want your favorite foods or something. You're just like, I don't know, whatever Friday night dinner you guys are planning on doing, like, just (laughs) say a little toast for me. It's really weird to plan a meal if I'm not going to be there to enjoy that meal, you know? Oh, (laughs) totally, yeah. Yeah, no, and, like, I don't know, I have friends who are vegetarian and friends who are sober, so, like, my first thought was, like, I want people to just get together at a dive bar, but I also want to be inclusive, so I wouldn't have people do that. Um, I would just want people to get together at a friend's house um, and enjoy a nice meal together and talk and laugh. And then if they want to remember me, that's fine. And if they want to just let me go, that's fine too. Um, I, I hate being the center of attention, even like when I'm in a room with a bunch of other people. So I, I mean, I wouldn't be there to feel it, but I, I kind of feel uncomfortable with being the center of attention, even when I'm not there. So, but, but it's, so it sounds like you would be comfortable with just being like the subtext of the evening. Cause it's like, Mm. well, what makes this dinner different than any other dinner? And it's just like (laughs) this knowledge that it is different. Mm -hmm. And even if we don't talk about it, once we all go home, we're like, hmm, that was the Sarah meal. Yeah. Just like kind of put that, not memory to rest. Um, but yeah, to, to put that that time, my time on earth to rest is just to have other people like, I don't know, send it out quietly. Like, a, I don't know, an Irish goodbye or whatever. That's so interesting because I don't think sh- the thing I've experienced in, in talking to people about this is that often people are like, I kind of want there to be waterworks. I kind of want it to be a big production. Absolutely not. No. That's <laughs> wild to me because it's like, I think people are ashamed to admit that. And I'm like all for that. So I, you know, encourage that, but it is interesting to genuinely be like, yeah, uncomfortable, posthumously uncomfortable (laughs) with attention. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Um, I, I feel uncomfortable when people sing happy birthday, like in the comfort of my own home. So like that feels like that times 100 and also people being really sad all at the same time. So like, I don't know, I can't control what people do after my, after I die. So um, I'm not going to say that people aren't going to do that, but I would prefer it if people were just, I don't know, like just kind of let me fade out a little bit. It would be nice. If you have to relive one memory for the, Not well, okay, not for the rest of eternity, but at any point in eternity that you want, you get to choose one memory that um, you can revisit anytime you want, however many times you want, but it's only one. 
You're not stuck in it, but you get to fully re-inhabit it. Can what I bring other choose? people with me into that memory? Like people who aren't in the original memory? Mm-hmm. Well, let's see here. Tell me what you mean, and then I'll tell you if you can do it. <laughs> it depends on if you can take somebody, because like I have, I had two ideas for this, and one of them is one where my husband is there, but it's just the two of us, um, and we were we were camping, and then there was another memory where my husband is not there, and I would like to take him there. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Either way, either way, I'm bringing my husband. Tell me, me, tell me. Okay, that's nice. <laughs> tell me about that. Tell me about the one where you want to bring him. Um, it was uh, I'll say junior year of college. Uh, I was on study abroad, and um, some friends where? of mine and I were all uh, the UK. So we were at uh, University of Kent in Canterbury, which was a really weird place to be because like it's Canterbury. You've got Canterbury Cathedral, like a lot of historical stuff. And then the, there's the University of Kent, which is like on this hilltop above the city itself. Uh, and it's a giant party school. And I went to a college that was like free Methodist dry campus, like the whole nine yards. Whoa. So it was a bit of a culture shock, but um, some other students, some who had come on study abroad with us and then some friends that we'd made there, um, a bunch of us just took a bus down to Dover and we walked along the cliffs for an afternoon. Like we got tea at a tea house on top of the cliffs. Um, it was a gorgeous sunny day. I think it was like 70 degrees outside, perfectly clear blue sky. You could see all the way to France. Um, and then there were just these giant white chalk cliffs covered in like, I don't know, a yellowy brown grass. Cause it was starting to die. It was in the fall. Um, and then the cliffs just sort of drop all the way down to the ocean. And you can see like the chalk getting washed away um, in the water. And the water that day in particular was like this incredible deep blue. Um, and we just literally got on top of the cliffs. We went and we got tea. And then we walked four or five miles to the nearest town. And then we took a bus back to the university. And that was like, that was literally just the day. There were maybe. 15 or 20 of us just walking along the cliffs for a few hours. It was really nice. Um, beautiful weather. I think everybody ended up talking with everybody else in just like small knots while we were walking. And like, that was it. There wasn't even really anything special other than the fact that the weather was really nice. Um, what were, who was the group of people? Um, it was a group of, it was a group of other students. Um, study abroaders or, Local or like uh, whatever the local version of non-study abroad students. <laughs> um, I think it was all study abroaders actually, but it wasn't all um, students from my university. There were a couple of other students from other locations. Um, there were a couple of Finns, mm. uh, a couple of Belgians, um, mostly Americans, I think. Um, and uh, yeah, we were just all, I don't know. We all wanted to get out of the town and just go somewhere. And Dover was a, as good a place as any because it was close. And how close did you walk to the cliffs? Literally like three feet away from the edge in places. Um, it was, it you was didn't, scary. You didn't sit on the edge? No, but I came real close. Because, <laughs> dude, the, I, that just, I have a visceral memory of I went to um, one of those the Aran Islands off uh, mm-hmm. Ireland, Inishmore. And it's a similar like cliff thing. And Hope, my partner and I were like, we're there. And I started to get dizzy like 
20 feet away you know mm. i was like ah like hi- i don't fuck with heights like really <laughs> and there were these two like teenage girls who just sat on the edge and started instagramming <laughs> and i dude it makes me tight like thinking about it right now it's mm-hmm. That shit is terrifying. So you just, <laughs> still okay. bug me a ton. Yeah, no, but we didn't okay. get too close. But there's also no railing on the edge of these cliffs. Like you can walk right up to the edge if you want to. Right. Yeah. And but it, but you you say they don't bug you, but it, mm-hmm. you did say it was scary. I mean, it was it was scary if you got like a little bit too close because it starts to slope a little bit too sharply towards the edge. Whoa, um, yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> God damn. Okay. But it was also like the most contented I think I've ever felt. Um, Which was part, part of the reason. Just everything. Just like being there with people that I knew really well and people that I didn't know at all, like who I'd met literally that day um, and just walking with them and enjoying the sun. Um, I think it had been rainy the week before. So it just felt really good to be out in the sunshine and outside and not like studying or reading or anything like that. And what part and why would you want to bring your husband? I mean, it would be nice to walk with him along the cliffs of Dover. <laughs> okay. So There's we're talking about a whole deep about that. revisionist yeah. history of removing yeah. all the other people. Oh, no. I would have all of those other people there, too. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like, I would, I would like to bring him. I would bring other friends. Like, I would like to swap people out and just go walking along the cliffs. Oh, like a li- you're like just hosting this like walking tour through your memory of like, and this is where yeah, I uh, stepped three feet away and it starts to slope down. This is the <laughs> chalk down at the bottom where it like mm-hmm. a tour. Yeah. You're like a tour guide of your own memory. Yeah. Like that would be really cool to be able to share that memory in particular with people. Um, and I would love to share it with as many people as I possibly could. But first and foremost, my husband, because I think he would think it would be really rad. It's he doesn't do heights either, though, so I wouldn't be able to get him very close. Uh, yeah, dude. I mean, it's very beautiful, <laughs> but it's just like, yeah, it's I and it's not, I don't think it's even the thing of like being afraid I'm going to jump. It's just like, oh, my God, this it is fucked up i can't explain like why this is bad and wrong and feels horror it it is a type of oblivion now that i think about it it kind of makes you confront infinity like right there yeah it's a similar fear to fear of not being conscious after death Mm -hmm. it's just this it's just like so vast and you're gonna get I mean, technically down, but like sucked up into this mm-hmm. oblivion. I kind of like that. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like feeling small against something really big and like recognizing that I'm not in the middle. Like I'm in the middle of all of it, but I'm not the center of it, you know? Like, and I think that's why I like the idea of sharing that memory in particular is like sharing that sense of smallness and still that sense of community with other people. What's your coma? The a-, a moment in your life where before you felt like you're one thing, after you feel like you were either different or something had been stripped away. Um, and it can be anything, big or small. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there was a school shooting at my university my senior year of college. Um, what so, school? Seattle Pacific University. Oh, okay. Um, it was the day before what was supposed to be my last day of classes, like senior year. Um, and as far as school shootings go, like it was really small, like small. Someone did die. Um, people were injured. Um, and I wasn't on campus for it, but I knew people who were in the building where it happened because that was their major. Like my roommate and my boyfriend at the time and like a bunch of my best friends were all like, they used that building every single day. They practically lived there. Um, and I wasn't on campus, but I was about as close to being on campus as you could possibly get. Um, which really sucks because like you can hear the helicopters and like, I still don't like the sound of helicopters overhead because of that. Um, and I kind of shut it away for a really long time, but within the year post shooting, um, I broke up twice. Um, I changed career trajectories. I moved halfway across the country. Um, I applied to multiple, (laughs) Um, grad school programs and got into one, which wasn't the one that I had originally wanted, but I was like, screw it. I'm moving across the country to do this thing anyway. Was that the UFC Um, one? That was the UFC one. Yeah. Um, I had wanted to do a PhD in linguistics. Um, and I had also wanted to be, um, a Bible translator, like a missionary overseas right up until probably pre-shooting was when I realized that that was not really for me. Um, But everything changed. And at the same time, I kind of buried it and didn't realize that that was the impetus for all of these changes that I'd made in my life um, until maybe five years after it happened. Um, And what did you think was going on? (laughs) I don't know. Like, I, I, I honestly think that I just kind of shut it up in a box somewhere and was like, this is something that happened that was really sad. And now I'm moving on with my life. And I didn't realize that I was shutting that trauma out and I wasn't allowing myself to feel the depth of what had happened at my school to the people that I went to school with and to me. But did you notice the pattern of these massive changes occurring so close together? No, I didn't. I had no idea that all of those things were happening in part because of this. And all of the changes that I made, I think I thought were temporary. Like I moved to the Midwest from Seattle and I thought that it was a temporary move. I was pl- I was always planning on moving back to Seattle after my grad program was over. Six years later, I'm still here. Um, I was so sure that I was going to go into academia and become a college professor. And then I ended up going into advertising for a hot minute um, <laughs> and working for a completely different company after that. Um yeah, I I think I, for a little while I was just adrift and I didn't realize that I was adrift. Um and it took a lot of well it took a lot of therapy. Um and it took a lot of contemplation to realize like that was the thing. It didn't necessarily cause me to make any of the decisions that I made, but it was the catalyst for making a lot of those decisions. That's probably a bit contradictory, but that's the best way that I can think of to describe it. I get it. I mean, so right. So this moment, you live through it, it causes hella upheaval, Mm -hmm. but you don't even, 
process it as the moment it was until later. Yeah, until years later. Yeah. And so what is it, um, you know, cause or catalyst either way? How do you characterize that moment now? Like, what do you, what does it mean to you? Mm, um, to me, it means that life is short. Um, it really, it made me really rethink the ways that we structure our society. Um, pre event, I was, I was a lot more pro second amendment. Um, and now I'm, I'm definitely for not just gun control, but also for providing people the systems and the resources that they need in order to have the support that they need, that they don't feel like they need to go out and do something so drastic to themselves or to other people. Um, and it made me realize just how, how weirdly like fragile and interconnected life is like life goes on even after a big disaster like that happens. Um, and I think for a long time I shut myself out of it because I didn't want to confront the things that I do to other people that also harm them because I didn't want to consider how this event had harmed me personally, as well as everybody else that it affected much more personally, much more closely. Um, so what are the harms it did to you and what are the harms that you were afraid of acknowledging to other people? Um, it really shattered my sense of security. Um, I did not feel safe for a very long time afterwards. Um, and I think, I think it also, I, I hate to say that it made me a kinder person because it, it did, it didn't, it made me more aware of how I treat other people. Um, because you never know what's going to happen next and you never know what is going to happen to someone after you say something to them. Um, and so it, it makes me want to, it, it made me a lot more careful about how I approached the relationships in my life because beforehand I had been just willing to say whatever I felt, however I felt it without considering what those words meant to other people, like considering the impact and not just the intention. Like you can have the best intentions and you can still hurt someone grievously. Um, and I'm still a jerk, but I try not to be as much of a jerk to people. <laughs> and at the same time, I also don't want to minimize the hurt and the harm that happened to the people who were in the building at the time. And does, I, I don't want to center myself, but this well, event but also touched me. In only a really talking to you, awful you know. Yeah, you I, mean, I, to I totally me. get it. But yeah, mm -hmm. like yeah, I'm just yeah. curious about your experience, and you have mm -hmm. your experience. Is so. Man, I okay. Did you know the shooter? No, okay. no, and they weren't even affiliated with the school. Um, oh, it was wow. just one of those things where, like, someone decided this was what they needed to do, right? Um, and then they did it. Um, was there just, a manifesto? Yeah. No, there, there wasn't. was. There was oh, not. Okay. No. Um. Okay. Totally separate. More. More. More relevant question is so these changes that this caused that you now see in hindsight it caused or, you know, catalyzed. Were they in you all along 
or do you feel like this like shifted what was this a stripping away of like obligation and expectation or is it like oh i'm just a different person now both if that makes sense um yeah i i think it i think it took away some of some of the coding um and i think at the same time it also like gave me a different coding I, i guess if you're thinking about it with like I don't know. I think about it in terms of pottery almost like it, it kind of stripped away one glaze and added a different one. Um, and in some places like the first glaze was, was kind of sharp and rocky. And the second one is it's, it's smoother, but it's a little bit more brittle in places. Mm. It's, I mean, that sounds like a very, I mean, literally violent example of aging. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just growing up. I mean, I think of, I mean, yeah, it's, it's impossible not to trivialize the experience by like comparing it to things. So I'm just going to kind of own that that's happening Mm -hmm. while recognizing that's ultimately not what I want to do, but it Mm -hmm. it makes me think of what you just described makes me think of like this Steve Martin quote about young comedians, like saying all sorts of irreverent things about dying and diseases and whatever. And then they start to know people who die and suffer from those Mm -hmm. diseases. And it like changes the way they, they say things and do things because they've had Mm -hmm. that experience. And I feel like that's the case for a lot of us is like going from subconscious immortality to yeah. Awareness of the fragility of life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it sucks that sometimes like it has to happen to you or to someone, you know, in order for it to impact. But I feel like that's one of the only ways that so many people, myself included, learn. Like I'm a kinesthetic learner. (laughs) Sure. I don't figure things out until I've done them myself. Um, and that sucks. So, well, and it's crazy because it's like people talk about, I talk about teaching empathy all the time. Mm But then when I think about the things that have actually taught me empathy, they're like, you know, intense, uh, not like physical violence, but like emotionally, you know, thematically like violent things. And it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, you can't, you, how do you teach empathy? Is it just by asking people to think about, you know, like when we're, when we're leading youth group, I always try to make them when it was physical, uh, like in, in the, in, you know, not virtual, like try to be like, listen, guys, we have to clean this space up, you know? Mm -hmm. So just, if you see a chip on the ground, I do not care (laughs) who put it there. Just think about the fact that that's more time, but that we don't get to go home because we have to grab the vacuum, but Mm -hmm. I don't, but maybe that's not even the way to teach that kind of empathy. I I mean, I don't think that you can, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't think you can make empathy make sense through theory. I think it can really only happen through action. And even if it's not necessarily empathizing with something that you personally have experienced, it's still putting yourself alongside somebody else who has experienced something and maybe not being able to fully understand what they're going through but recognizing that whatever it is that they're going through, it's something that's meaningful to them. And because it's meaningful to them, maybe it's something that should be meaningful to you. Um, 
is the way that I see it anyway. So I don't know that that almost feels a little bit trite, but that's the only way that I can think of to, to, I don't know, express that. Yeah. I mean, I didn't think it was trite until you said that. And now I'm questioning, (laughs) is that trite? I'm constantly questioning whether or not anything I I ever say is trite. Same man, same. (laughs) That is the show. Thank you so much for listening. Follow, support Sarah, buy that book, go to my Patreon, tell people about the podcast, the Patreon, and enjoy your fucking week, man. I'll uh, I'll talk to you next week. America, thing that seems impossible, you can do miracles, miracles. You can do them, have faith, you are human, only human, and human beings they do.